Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Robert Keller. Dr. Keller is an associate professor at Northern Arizona University and serves as chief scientific officer of Axolotl Biologic. Dr. Keller, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Well, thank you, John. It's good to be here. So, Dr. Keller, I know that you have interest in various therapies to fit in the regenerative medicine space, one of which is using materials derived from the placenta. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular strategy for therapy? Sure. So the placenta is a pretty amazing tissue. About nine months of development in the womb, this placental tissue is really chock full of all sorts of different types of nutrients and tissues and insoluble and soluble components that help to promote a regenerative environment that creates an entire organism from a single cell. And in a lot of Western medicine activities, that placental tissue is discarded after the birth is finished. And instead of creating a biohazard waste that's thrown away, we're able to source donated placentas from elected C-sections. And the elected C-section inclusion criteria is to make sure that it's a sterile harvest and from that placental tissue, we isolate the amniotic membrane. That amniotic membrane is decellularized, and that becomes a regenerative membrane that can be used for a lot of different types of applications where we want to encourage healing or create kind of a barrier function to encourage healing. And then the cells that are liberated out of that tissue, those cells are cultured in a clean room, and they condition a fluid like what they were doing in utero, they secrete a number of growth factors and cytokines into this fluid, and that becomes a regenerative fluid. So where has this been used clinically? The fluids that we manufacture have been used in a variety of locations, but really the two main categories that we hear reports back from physicians is in the space of promoting wound healing into wounded tissue like skin wounds, and then another space is in joints where we've got complications that arise as we get older, and the fluid is serving a really nice regenerative process within those joint spaces. So as I look at the various therapies that fit into the stem cell and regenerative medicine category, it seems to me there's lots of expectations and there's some very promising results, but it seems that there's no clear pathway as to whom this helps and who it does not help. Do you find this, your situation be the same? Yeah, I think from a field standpoint, I mean, the field of regenerative medicine is fascinating, and there's a lot of companies, scientists, and physicians that are trying to develop next-generation technologies that are going to help promote reparative processes in the body or encourage those natural repair processes to be upregulated or turned on. Maybe it is that they're sort of stalled out and some of these therapies can kind of give them a kickstart. But inevitably, in that attractive environment, we have a lot of players. And so many of these companies have been operating in a regulatory space that isn't super clearly defined. 
And now what we're seeing is more and more companies, ours included, that are going to be initiating clinical trials that are FDA oversaw clinical trials that are on record with the agency. Clinicaltrials.gov will have them on file. We'll enroll patients according to standard inclusion and exclusion criteria. We'll follow patients for a period of time and collect outcome measures, and then we'll be able to make decisions about the success of these therapies and particular indications. And so that, fortunately, is the direction that the field is headed. And ourselves, along with many other companies, are starting to file these initial regulatory documents, INDs, in order to be designated into a certain category, whether it's going to be a biologic therapy or a device therapy. And clinical trial will follow and and then on the other side, we'll emerge with specific indication statements that have clinical data to support them. Right now, where the field is, is very much anecdotal. Physicians are making decisions about how they want to use these technologies that are fairly widely available and are offered primarily under regulations that are tissue regulations. And so it's kind of up to the physician to make a lot of the determination on where they want to use it. And these physicians are reporting pretty phenomenal results, and that's why I think they're being used very liberally out there in the marketplace. And so I think it's important for the field to sponsor or encourage the promotion of designed clinical trials for specific target indications, and then we'll have a much better understanding of how to treat, what to expect, how much of a benefit is realistic, and then what are the limits of regenerative therapies, because they're not the end-all, be-all or a magic bullet that'll treat everything. We just haven't specifically tested them in that fashion yet, but now we're starting to do that. So I think it's going to be much better for the field, for patients and physicians as well. That's a very good explanation of where you are and where you need to go. Where does someone sign up for a clinical trial sponsored by your organization? Clinical trials are yet to come, but when that happens, the first clinical target that we're going to be going after is going to be ankle arthritis. We're going to be enrolling patients in a multi-centered clinical trial with an indication to treat ankle arthritis. And so for individuals that are listening, I mean, the best place to track that is going to be on clinicaltrials.gov. And the public can find on clinicaltrials.gov active clinical trials that may be in their area that they would be eligible for. It wouldn't just be our company, it would be everybody everybody that are doing clinical trials. And so I think the neat thing for patients is there's going to be more of a broad-based resource for them to go look up and say, okay, well, I would qualify for this. I may not qualify for that. Uh, And it's nice to have that educational piece that's really sponsored by the federal government. So that's where I would encourage everybody to look. I did a bit of homework and found a paper talked about PRP therapies. And I noticed one of your papers talks about shares the comparison PRP and the placenta-derived fluid, and basically you suggest they're very, very similar. So the paper I found suggests that for PRP therapies, they seem to be effective for pain relief and joint function improvement, but this mechanism of action is unlikely to involve enhancement of the cartilage formation. Based on what you know at this point, would you suggest that that might be the same for your fluid? Based upon our knowledge to date of PRP, 
which has been around for a while, and it stands for platelet-rich plasma. Uh, it essentially involves capturing a blood sample from a patient and then subjecting it to a series of spins or centrifugation steps, which are going to separate out different layers or components of the fluid into regions separated by density. And then there's a what's called a platelet-rich plasma layer. That layer is collected and typically used for that same patient therapeutically. And that PRP solution is typically rich in a variety of different growth factors and cytokines. And the types of growth factors and cytokines that are found there tend to be ones that promote healing and repair. They may stimulate cells to divide, migrate, proliferate. And so they have kind of a regenerative feature or characteristic to them. And amniotic-derived fluids are very, very similar to that. They seem to have some of the same types of growth factors and cytokines that you would find in a PRP-like solution. I guess one of the main differences, though, is when PRP is harvested, it's coming from a source that's the age of that patient. So if you pull PRP from a 70-year-old patient, then the cellular machinery that's manufacturing the growth factors and cytokines that are found within that PRP layer, they're going to be the age of that patient. Whereas with amniotic-derived tissues, you're working with a very young cell population. So you're working with tissue that is maybe 9, 10 months old, that's it, rather than 70 or 80 years of age. So what we do know about the aging process is telomere lengths shorten as cells get older, and so this cellular machinery does tend to wear out, and that's the aging process. So you're going to have similar types of solutions that have similar things inside of them, but you might have a big difference between the youthfulness of the cell and machinery that created that fluid. So that might be some of the big differences that you would find between a PRP solution and then maybe an amniotic-derived fluid. Yes, there are studies that suggest young cells are more effective than old cells. Dr. Keller, thank you for joining us today and sharing your pioneering work in the area of wound healing and cartilage repair. Best wishes for continued success to you and your colleagues. And until we meet again, thank you for listening. Have a good day. <music>